with us last Sunday evening, we, we embarked on a short series uh, exploring the book of Nehemiah. We're seeking wisdom from God as we as a church, we look ahead and as we consider how we could and how we should uh, attempt great things for God as we expect great things from him. Uh, William Carey's provocative words there. Just to remind you really briefly of where Nehemiah fits into the big story of the Bible. God chose our people for himself. Israel, he settled them in their own land and he dwelt among them through his temple in the heart of Jerusalem, but they refused to obey him. And after many warnings and judgment, he sent them away from that land and away from the temple and into exile. And now in his mercy, God promised they would return after 70 years. And that return's begun. The temple's been rebuilt. Uh, and a remnant of the people are back. But, but that's about all. Uh, things aren't going that well for them. Uh, it's a million miles from a return to the glory days of Israel. And that is where the book of Nehemiah comes into the big story of the Bible. He's an exiled Jew. He's one of these who lived away from the land. He's risen through the ranks to become the cupbearer to the Persian king, the, the greatest ruler in the whole world at the time. Last week, we saw he was suddenly gripped by Israel's situation. Not a new thing, but something that suddenly gripped him in a new way. And he wanted to do something about it, and so he prayed. Um, we saw he prayed with seven Ps, and now it's points mean prizes time. Who can remember seven Ps for how Nehemiah prayed from last week? Seven. That's a lot of Ps, isn't it? Give me, give me one. Give me one, and I'll feel better. Perspective. Oh, I'm so impressed. I'm glad you were listening and paying attention. Seven Ps. We won't go back through them. You'll be glad to know. Um, Perspective, penitence, promises, passion, peers, are a plan, and then perseverance. Nehemiah prayed, and boy, did he pray. He prayed, as we saw, for about four months. And it all came down to his final prayer, grant your servant success today. That's where we pick up the story. So it will really help you to have a Bible if you have one with you. We're in Nehemiah 2. If you don't, the stewards are going to wander down, and if you wave a hand, they'll give you a Bible. And if you're using one of the church ones, these purpley, that's not purple, burgundy ones, it's page 484, Nehemiah, and we're going to start in chapter 2, page um, 484. But before we read, why don't we pray and ask our God to speak to us? Let's pray together. Father God, Thank you that all the words we sing are true, that you are a great, a glorious, and an awesome God, one who rules every speck of dust in this universe, and yet you are a loving and a merciful God, that you sent your Son to redeem us, and Lord, just as Israel was sent into exile for their refusal to obey you. And yet in your mercy, you redeemed them, Lord. We were sent from your presence, and in your mercy, you're bringing us back through Jesus. Lord God, as we, as a church and as individuals, think about how it is we should be living uh, in the light of these great things and in the midst of these great things happening, please, would you speak to us today through your word? Lord, would you help me 
Would you help me to declare clearly what it is you have said? Might your spirit make your word powerful and effective? Lord, make us think. Lord, challenge the way we're living, and we pray you might lead us into more of what you would have for us. Uh, We ask these things not for us, but for you, for your glory, for your kingdom. Amen. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to take it in little chunks, and we're going to read just the first few verses to begin with. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And we're going to pause there in the middle of a sentence. Can you feel the drama in this section of the story He's been praying and praying and praying. He's gripped by the plight of this people, Israel, away in Jerusalem. And his prayers come right down to this sharp point of give me favor today in the presence of this man. Finally, the moment has come. Uh, Why the long face, as the bartender said to the horse. Uh, why, Why the long face, asked the king. It's the moment to speak. So he responds, responds in a very politically savvy way. Do you notice he talks about the city where the tombs of my ancestors are? That's just like generally honored in ancient Near Eastern culture. These are always things people would have cared about. Do you notice he doesn't name the city that he's talking about? Clever lead in. The king says, what is it you want? Now it's the moment. Uh, It's time for the huge ask. Well, pause the tape, and I want to know, have you ever sat in a moment like that? Have you had a moment where you knew you had something important to say, something big to say, something that if you said it, I was going to have significant consequences, something where you know the window was open for you to speak, where there's a lot riding on it. Can you think of a moment like that? I can think of a few in my life where I know I've had something to say. Now, were you afraid at that moment? Were you afraid? My heart was pounding at those moments. Here's an encouragement for us, okay? Nehemiah He was very much afraid, the text tells us, very much afraid. In the original Hebrew language, as afraid as you can be. There's no more intense expression he could have used. He was wetting himself. He's been very spiritual, right? He's been praying like Bilio for this moment for ages and ages. It's still, when it comes, he is terrified. 
two things to learn from this. First, if you are afraid in a moment when you know you've got something to say, if you're afraid, that's not necessarily unspiritual. It doesn't necessarily show that your faith is weak. But these turning points in our lives, these critical moments, they're still scary (laughs) moments when the rubber hits the road. But secondly, and I think probably more important for us, we need to expect it sometimes to be scary, and yet we need to be ready to act anyway. Right? We need to not imagine if we've got our stuff together, if we've prayed and thought and planned, then it's just going to be a walk in the park. That it's just going to be straightforward and easy going. We need to expect it sometimes to be scary. No, we need to expect it sometimes to be downright terrifying. It's going to require gutsy action to pull the ripcord and go for it, even with a God vision, even with much prayer and planning. Expect the fear and do it anyway. We mustn't misinterpret fear as always saying we're on a wrong path. It's a great moment for an arrow prayer like Nehemiah does here. You know, the, the one you can shoot up in a moment in your heart. Does God listen to those things? Of course he does. What is it you want, asks the king, and it's all hanging in the balance. Nehemiah goes and does it. He puts it all out on the line. Verse five, he says, I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Cue drama-enhancing break. Backing music with tension, excessively long pause as the jury get ready to vote on who is going through to the next round. It is the perfect moment for a commercial break, actually, isn't it? He's made the huge ask. I want to go back and rebuild the city. Can you imagine the tension as Nehemiah waits for the king to respond? Of course, we need to remember it's not just any city that he's asking about. It's Jerusalem, and it's really pretty certain the king did know which city he was meaning to speak about, even though he's been veiled and described it gently as a, you know, this place in Judah. It's pretty certain the Persian Empire, though it was massive, the king knew about the capital cities in each province. And Jerusalem, let's remember, wasn't just any city. It was such a pain to Babylon that they went to the trouble of pulling the walls down. It's a major operation, a right headache to destroy the walls. Big hassle. It took time and effort, but they did it because the city had been a pain in the backside. They wanted to put an end to it. In fact, it seems Artaxerxes, the king that we're speaking to right here, he'd actually done some research on this very same city earlier in his rule. And uh, in Ezra 4.19, we find out what what he learned. Ezra 4.19, he learned that the city has a long history of revolt against kings, and it's been a place of rebellion and sedition. And so he himself commanded it should not be rebuilt. So let's get this straight. Nehemiah has just asked the king to rebuild a rebellious and seditious city. Why would the king ever agree to something so ridiculous? How could that possibly be a good idea? What sort of king invites his servants to go off and do stuff like that. Nehemiah, that is a crazy idea. What are you thinking? Well, I wonder, what was he thinking? 
pretty sure he must have been thinking something like, without God, this is doomed. This is ridiculous. This is impossible. But I think God is in this. How often is it, I think, that we are only willing to imagine and pursue things where we're confident we can achieve them, uh, where we're confident where we can deliver it, whether God shows up or not? How rarely do we dare to pursue things which are so big they leave us dependent on God? Uh, one writer, Andy Stanley, puts it this way. He says, it's safe to assume most Christians are not attempting anything at all that requires God's intervention. Ask yourself for a moment, am I? Am I attempting something that is impossible without God's intervention? Don't we so much prefer to live safe lives, um, safe within the space we can take care of ourselves, right? We wanna take on things we know we can handle, things we know we can deliver, things we can accomplish, safely independent of God. But God is planning things that are utterly beyond us. He's planning things that dwarf the capabilities of the most competent, effective, gifted person you know. Do we perhaps miss the part we could have played in his plans because we just really won't think big enough? Well, Nehemiah is sure thinking big here. There's another thing I want us to see from these first steps in Nehemiah's journey. You see those, those four months we talked about where he's been praying? Uh, I want to see he wasn't just praying. So let me show you that. We're going to read again uh, from verse 5. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? Oh, and may I have a, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple uh, and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Let's just think about that exchange there for a minute, okay? King asks, well, when are you going to get back? Okay, Nehemiah, let's say I greenlight this crazy plan you came to me with. How long is it going to take? Well, imagine Nehemiah responds like this. Imagine he says, oh, I don't know, actually. I haven't, haven't really thought about that. Uh, it would definitely take quite a while. Um, uh. There's a, a key thing we can learn here, a nice equation to sum it up for the mathematicians among us. Opportunity minus planning equals missed opportunity. Uh, has that ever happened to you? You know, the door opens, uh, but you're just not prepared to step through it. Or opportunity knocks, but you can't find the keys to go and let it in. 
Maybe it's a, a work thing. You know, that moment came, but you just didn't have the detail. Um, maybe it's speaking to somebody about Jesus. The conversation opened up. You had a chance to say something, but you'd never really thought about what it was you were actually going to say. Nehemiah, he has a plan. And look at verses seven and eight. It is not just an outline, it is a detailed plan, right? Safe passage, safe passage. He's thought about it being a long, dangerous trip that he's planning on taking timber, timber for the gates of the internal citadel. He's got a blueprint out on his desk, right? Timber for the wall. He's thought about, how do you make a wall that tall? You know, they used to put timber in them to make them stronger in earthquakes, they think. Ooh, where am I gonna live, he's thought. I need some timber for my house. He has thought this through in detail, and you can bet these are just the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing here. Here is what has been going on in Nehemiah's head for these last four months. Let's say I did get to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Let's say I did. I get that done how could it actually happen hmm big stones those are very big stones gonna need a lot of people who's gonna do the lifting burned gates we're gonna need some new gates the gates are burned that's a lot of wood where do you get that much wood where's the money gonna come from for this operation and how long is that wall anyway how, how much do I need I think sometimes now, perhaps many times when we're attempting something, we don't get far because we just haven't done the work. The think through beyond the outline how it should actually happen, beyond the soundbite and down into the detail of, well, what is it we're actually going to do? How could this come to pass? And it is work. Uh, it's not easy. It does take effort. Nehemiah has spent four months praying, but he's also spent these four months planning. Praying and planning, planning with this best architect in the world, the Lord. So Nehemiah has a plan. Uh, but we should also notice this isn't just any plan he has. This is a huge plan. He kind of brushes over it in the narrative here. Uh, how long are you going to be gone? Um, so I, I, I set a time. Later on, we find out uh, just how long this time was. It seems that he is not back in Susa for 12 years. That's chapter 13, verse 6. A plan which took 12 years. A plan to rebuild a rebellious and seditious city the king himself had said not to. A plan to rebuild it using the king's own money and wood. It's quite something. But again, how often are we only willing to think about plans that are safely within our capability? Right? Plans that we're comfortable we can accomplish. Plans which are within our means, uh, within our budget. Plans which, if we're honest, don't really depend on God much at all. This plan is going to leave Nehemiah utterly dependent. It is way beyond his abilities. And where does it end? Well, Nehemiah has an incredible day. He has an extraordinary day. The king grants his request, verse 8 tells us. Great job, Nehemiah. Amazing plan. Remarkable boldness. Is that me? 
Remarkable boldness, well played. Because of you and your great preparation, your amazing spirituality, something amazing is starting. Three cheers for Nehemiah. But notice that is not how he sees it at the end of the day. Do you notice how he finishes? Why he thinks he was successful? It's at the end of verse eight. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me. That's why the king granted my requests. Even when something amazing starts, and it looks like Nehemiah has been the catalyst and the one at the center of it, the one who's done the work and deserves. Well, even then, he remembers ultimately, it all comes down to God, our God. Our God who is sovereignly in charge of all things. All the power is his, right? And so all the glory belongs to him too. That's the end Nehemiah is serving here, is the glory of God. And if we are to dare to plan great plans and attempt great things, they have to have this same purpose and end. All glory to God. I've really enjoyed the story of Nehemiah. I found it very exciting and there's some interesting details in there. But why should you care about what some guy did two and some thousand years ago, somewhere far away? Why should you and I be thinking about this passage? What could we take away? Do you know, I think the biggest thing in this passage is something we haven't even talked about yet, but it's there. It's woven right through. The huge challenge, I think, in this story is this paradox of God's sovereignty and yet human responsibility, the paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That sounds complicated, but it's not complicated. It just means this. On the one hand, God is utterly sovereign, totally in charge. Nothing at all happens without his say-so. And yet, at the same time, humans have a responsibility to act. Nehemiah looks for all the world like he is the one in the driving seat. He prayed, he planned, and then he acts, he pushes things into motion, like it all depends on him. In fact, do you notice he even feels like it all depends on him? He is very, very afraid. He is sweating like the whole thing depends on him. God is totally in control, and yet at the very same time, humans have this responsibility to act. The Bible tells us the king's will is in God's hands. It's like a water course that he directs wherever he chooses. And yet Nehemiah does need to speak to the king here. He doesn't just wait for God to do it. He does need to formulate a plan with details and steps, not just wait and pray and wait and pray and see what God will do. He even presents it with cunning and courage. Some of us, some of us naturally gravitate to one end of this spectrum, right? Some of us, we gravitate so much towards God's sovereignty, uh, his total control, that we feel, well, really, it would be presumptuous of us to make a plan because God's is the only plan that stands. Uh, it would be presumptuous of us to set goals and to work out details to act, to push things forward. We can feel like the right spiritual approach to things 
is to wait and pray and see what God will do. It'd be wrong to try and stick our oar in. Uh, better to wait on the Lord. That's over one end, but others of us naturally gravitate to the other end of the spectrum, right? We gravitate so much towards our human responsibility that we're in danger of forgetting God. If we're honest, we get so tied up in how we could do it, what the practicalities are, what method's gonna work, what technique is gonna help us, that we forget God. We have our project plan finalized and up on the wall before we've ever been down on our knees. And, and you know what that makes? That makes a plan that we are gonna be able to pull off, not a plan that is dependent on God. I know my tendency in this spectrum, but I wonder which end do you more naturally gravitate towards? Are you more often finding yourself so respecting and honoring of God's sovereignty that you don't feel it would be right to push? Or, or do you more often find yourself at the racing into action and planning and taking things into your own hands end of the spectrum? Well, do you know there's weaknesses in both? Both miss the mark, and this Nehemiah section today challenges us to pray and plan. It challenges us to pray and push. Why does this matter? Because in our age, God is embarking on an even greater building project. He's not just rebuilding some city in the Middle East with two and a half miles of wall around it. He is ending the greatest exile of all. When we were cast out of God's presence in the garden at the beginning, he's ending that. And he's ending it not by bringing us back to another garden, but bringing us into a new city, a new Jerusalem where God is once again gonna live in the middle of his people. He is calling us to be a new temple built together, he says, out of living stones, a place where God is present. He's calling all people everywhere to repentance and faith in Jesus. This is a grand building project. This is a huge building project, and it's one that should grip us and it should involve us. It's one that I'm hoping more and more will grip us and will involve us. It's where we need to embrace this paradox that God is sovereign, and yet we are responsible to act. Now, of course, it's impossible for any of us to save anyone. Of course it is. You don't need to read your Bible for long before you discover that's clear. We can't open the eyes of the blind. We can't bring dead people to life. We can't give faith to anyone. Uh, God is completely sovereign in all those things. It's completely impossible for us, and yet we do at the same time have a responsibility to act in this. We've been clearly given it. We've joined in to God's great mission, right? Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Jesus says our goal is, with Paul, to win as many people as possible. How do we respond, right? Do we gravitate to the spiritual end of the spectrum and say, well, we just gotta pray, just gotta pray. Just gotta wait on God. Or do we gravitate to the action end of the spectrum and say, let's just get out there and start acting with a plan like it all depends on us? Nehemiah shows us we need to do both. We should pray and plan. We should pray and push forward. 
pray like we talked about last week, right? Praying with perspective, praying with penitence, recognizing where we're out of keeping with God. I pray God's promises back to him, remind him of what he said he would do. Pray with passion for his project. Pray with peers around us, let's share in this together. Pray about our plans, pray with persistence, pray on and on. But not just pray, we should pray and plan as well as we think about this biggest building project of all. We should do the work to think through how it really could come about. How is it really that we're going to reach a city like Edinburgh with the gospel? How are we actually going to do this? What's it going to take? Even with an individual, how is this person ever going to become a follower of Jesus? What could move our conversation forward? Uh, what can move our relationship forward? How could I deepen the connection? Like nobody just shows up at a building site with a pile of bricks and starts stacking them expecting a beautiful dream home to pop out, right? They plan it, they draw it, they think it through. They imagine where different things might be and how it might fit together. That is a trivial building project. Now imagine you're involved in the building project of God's new city. So plan. Think about it, get practical, get detailed. Yes, God is sovereign, but we also have a responsibility. How is it we are planning on getting the job done? And remember we talked about the scale of Nehemiah's plan and what that does. We should plan big. We should plan huge. We should plan vastly beyond our ability, vastly beyond our budget, vastly beyond our capability. We should have a plan that is utterly impossible if God doesn't show up. Think about this, how could we actually reach this city, this whole city? 450,000 people, what would it take? That is a lot of people, how could that ever happen? How are we gonna get there? What are the next steps we should take? What preparation is gonna require? What resources do we want to begin to put together? 450,000 people aren't gonna fit in this building. Nice though it is. Won't fit in Murrayfield. Now then, what about the nation and what about the world? How is it that you and I are actually gonna play our part in this giant building plan that God has? So pray and plan, okay? We really do need to become more concrete and practical in our planning, but also pray and push, right? It's all very well having a great plan for what we might do up here. Like it really doesn't matter if the rubber never hits the road. Now, it is gonna be scary like we talked about. Like even if we prayed and planned, it is gonna be scary taking a big step as an individual in a conversation with somebody else. Taking a big step as a church. It's gonna be scary. Even if we believe and know that God is sovereign, even if we've done our homework and planned, it is still gonna be scary. It's gonna take guts to jump out the plane and put the plan into action. I wonder if you feel, have a little more grasp on how this paradox, this tension works out. I wonder if you a little more sense for where you naturally gravitate to on it. I think all of us struggle to hold this together. 
So let's get really practical and personal. Where do you think you struggle the most on this one? Where do you think you need to change? Do you need more passion for God's great building project? Is that, is that the thing that you struggle with? Do you need to pray more? Do you need to bow more to God's sovereignty? Is your issue that you're too dependent on yourself, too independent of God? Or do you need to plan more, right? Do you need to think more practically about what it is you're actually gonna do when the moment comes? Or are you over at this end? Do you just need the guts to push it out the door? I want you to pick one in your heads, okay? Passion, prayer, planning, or pushing. Pick one of those, 30 seconds, you can do it. I'm not gonna make you share, it's okay. But I do want you to pick one. You got one? We're gonna do some homework right now. I'm going to give you just one minute right now to wrestle privately with how is that really gonna change? And what I wanna challenge you to do is to think of something actionable, something practical, something realistic that you could actually do to change that. Now, do you need to get more passionate about God's great burden projects? You need to learn to pray more and bow to God's sovereignty. Do you need to plan more? Do you need to actually push harder? Try and think of one practical thing that you can do to strengthen your weak suit. I'm gonna give you one minute, 60 whole seconds. Ready? What are you gonna do? Sixty seconds. Small change really in your lives. That's a pretty small investment in the key things that life is really about. Why not choose to put some more time into this? Uh, perhaps your own, perhaps you want to bring somebody else in with you. Maybe you got stuck and you had no idea how it could possibly change. Well, why not ask somebody else to join with you in this? Perhaps you could talk to them after the service. You can talk to me. Uh, we'll have a prayer team down the front. They'd be delighted to pray with you. Nehemiah teaches us to hold God's sovereignty and our human responsibility together in pursuit of God's great building projects. God is doing something amazing. Be a part of it. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord God, you are absolutely sovereign. You rule every detail of our world. All power is yours, every king's heart, and so every heart is in your hands. Not a hair falls from our heads without your say-so. And yet, Lord, you, you ask us to join with you in your great building project. And Lord, it seems you invite us to think, to use our gifts and our skills, our minds, to consider how it is we might do that. Lord, please help us to hold both ends, not to let go of your sovereignty nor to shirk our responsibility, but instead, Lord, might we be those who plan to be a part of your great project. And please, would you help us have the courage to push it into action. Though there might be fear, Lord, grant that we would do it anyway. And so, Lord, we pray at the end of the day we might be able to remark on how your gracious hand has been with us and how you granted us success for your project, how we succeed at. Lord, please help us to make progress, not just to do same again, stuck. Please grant us progress. We ask all these things for your glory. Amen.